Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. Veterinarians are perhaps prone to oversharing when we talk with clients about animal parasites, but we really can't help it. First of all, our patients deal with the effects of worms in a number of ways. We frequently see animals who suffer from gastrointestinal illness, weight loss, blood loss, or occasionally kidney, cardiac, muscular, or neurologic diseases that all may relate to parasitic infections. If you're a pet parent or an animal producer, your eyes may glaze over a bit when the vet discusses the health risks associated with parasites. But these risks are significant. Many parasites also have zoonotic potential. They can be shared between animals and humans. And this is part of why veterinarians continue to discuss these creatures with our clients. We want to protect animal health and the health of humans who care for and interact with animals. The parasite risks in a specific region constantly change as parasites migrate along for the ride in an infected animal around the province, the country, the continent, or around the world. In many species, there is evidence that some parasites are developing resistance to certain types of deworming medications. This has been a concern in ruminants for many years, but more recently, researchers have begun to diagnose anthelmintic resistance in some canine parasites. One of these parasites is the canine hookworm. Dr. John Gilliard from the University of Calgary has been involved in investigations into the emergence and diagnosis of these drug-resistant canine hookworms over the past few years. Dr. John Gilliard is a professor of parasitology, and he's a researcher at the University of Calgary Faculty of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Gilliard qualified as a veterinarian initially from the University of Liverpool in the UK, and after three years in general vet practice, undertook a PhD at the University of Glasgow. He has previously held positions of professor of parasitology at Glasgow Veterinary School, associate dean of research in the Faculty of Vet Med at the University of Calgary, and he's been president of the American Association of Veterinary Parasitology. In 2021, he was elected as a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. His research interests are in the field of antiparasitic drug resistance and molecular diagnostics of parasites, with a particular focus on gastrointestinal nematodes of both domestic animals and of humans. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Gilliard. It's a pleasure to be here. So anthelmintic, or dewormer, resistance, this is an issue of concern in several animal species, but only more recently are we appreciating this in dogs. Can you tell us a bit about why this is? Yeah, so as as you're alluding to, it's been a a major concern in livestock parasites for many years. So when we think about roundworm parasites, the the nematodes, in sheep, for example, uh, it's really got to a very advanced stage over the last decade or two. If you take a parasite like Homonchus contortus, which is a roundworm of sheep in the gastrointestinal tract, um, resistance has emerged to the three three or four main drug classes now, such that in some parts of the world, there's quite literally an inability to control this parasite using these drugs. Similar problems are emerging in horse parasites, cattle parasites, so really grazing livestock in general. It's really not been as apparent in small animals such as dogs and cats and there are a number of reasons for that the main reason it's such a problem for such a long time in livestock is if you think about the way we use these drugs in livestock where animals are grazing on a pasture we treat with drug 
uh, the, the parasites which survive the drug are resistant and they seed that pasture with parasites which then livestock re-ingest and that therefore leads to a cycle of treatment and reinfection, which is quite intense and over time will select for resistance. Obviously, the way companion animals pick up parasites in the environment is a little bit different to that and more complex. And so it seems to have taken a lot longer for resistance to emerge. And then also there's a side of it where because we know it's a problem in livestock, we, we, there's more research on it, people look for it more. And, and because it's really not been apparent on the companion animal side, people have not been looking, there's been very little research. And so that adds to the problem as well. And I think we you, typically what we tend to find first in the livestock and now in companion animals is by the time we see it, it's, it's become quite advanced. Another side of it is really, we don't have really good, easy tools to detect resistance so if you contrast it to something like antimicrobial resistance where you can isolate bacteria on plates and use antimicrobial discs and really easily rapidly test for resistance we don't have those kind of in vitro tests for uh, antelmintic resistance and so the tools we have are, are, are more kind of specialized and uh, less sensitive and so again that leads to a kind of delay in detection so tell me a bit about canine hookworms. I know they're particularly terrifying when you see an image of them, but how do they infect and affect our dogs? They are quite scary parasites when you see them magnified. In terms of hookworms, there's two main species in dogs in North America. The big one, if you like, in terms of importance, and that's called Ancelostoma caninum. And that's present throughout North America, but is mainly well, much, much more prevalent and at higher levels in southern warmer regions and then there's a northern hookworm which is Uncineris stenocephala which is really less uh, damaging and actually more of a wildlife parasite which spills over into domestic animals isn't really a, as big a problem so when we think of Ancelostoma caninum um, traditionally we think of it in the southern US it's been kind of spreading over a number of, of decades further north. In recent years, like it may be becoming endemic in Canada, I can talk more about that later if you like, but, but essentially we did a survey or a part of a survey in 2015 looking at bunch of different dog parasites and that found a prevalence in shelter dogs of Ancelostoma caninum across, across Canada. A more recent study from a colleague at Guelph, Dr. Andrew Peregrine, looking at fecal samples from, from dog parks, found the prevalence of about 6% of that parasite. And so, you know, the, the feeling is it's becoming endemic in Canada and the prevalence is likely increasing. And again, we can touch more on that as, as we go through the research. In terms of what they look like, they're actually very small worms. They're a centimetre long. But when you blow them up, the scary appearance you're referring to if you look at the head, it's got a large buccal cavity with these really sharp teeth. And they basically feed by sucking in a plug of mucosa in the small intestine, causing hemorrhage and, and drinking the blood of the host. And so they produce all these anticoagulants and, and, and other compounds which stop the clotting mechanisms. Basically, what that means is you get a lot of hemorrhage across the mucosa. And these parasites kind of graze around, so they go from position to position causing more hemorrhage as they go. And it's actually been estimated that a dog can lose up to 0.8 mils of blood per worm or per day. So if, if you add that up for several hundred worms, you can imagine the blood loss. So the clinical impact is, is really about that hemorrhage. So the main clinical sign you would see is anemia, and that can go from chronic low-grade 
lethargy to acute severe anemia, particularly in young dogs, and it can be bad enough to be fatal in, in puppies. The life cycle, which is absolutely key to both control and, and a lot of what we're talking about today, is quite complex. The adult worms, as I say, live in the small intestine. They breed, the female worms produce eggs which pass out in the feces. And those eggs then hatch, or larvae hatch from those eggs in the fecal material, the L3 stage, and then migrate out into the environment. And that development of the L3 stage in the feces takes a minimum of five days or, or longer, depending on the temperature. Once they're in the environment, they then, then obviously are a source of infection for, for other dogs. And that infection can occur through a number of different routes. The first route is by oral, oral ingestion. So if, if a dog ingests these infective larvae from the environment, one of two things can happen. They can develop directly in the small intestine to adult worms in that dog, or the L3s can penetrate the small intestine mucosa into the bloodstream and then pass to the respiratory tract where they break out into the alveoli and then migrate up the respiratory tree, up to the trachea, and then are swallowed, and then basically develop to adult worms in the, the small intestine. Also, larvae can penetrate the skin, so either through the foot pads or, or other areas of skin. And when they do that, they pass into the bloodstream and again follow this route to the lungs, and then up the respiratory tree and back to the gut that way. So what I've described there is a main part of the life cycle form infection in, in dogs typically below about three months of age. In dogs older than that, another thing happens where a proportion of those larvae, when they get to the lungs, will pass through the lungs into the bloodstream and then to somatic tissues such as muscle and fat. And then they can inhibit their development for many months or even years in muscle and fat. And they, therefore dogs can build up a kind of reservoir or quiescent larvae in their tissues. And that has two important implications. One is in pregnant bitches, a proportion of these larvae reactivate and, and pass the mammary gland and then into the milk. And then that's a source of direct infection to the pups. And so that's one of the main ways that very young pups can get infected through the milk of their mother. The other relevance of these inhibited larvae is throughout the life of the dog, these inhibited larvae or a proportion of them can reactivate and then pass to the, the small intestine and develop as adult worms. And so if you think of an adult dog with this reservoir of these larvae, as adult worms in the gut die, uh, they get gradually replaced from this pool of inhibited larvae in the somatic tissues. And that can happen either by worms just you know, becoming old and dying, or it can, can happen when you treat with a drug that the worms can repopulate from these somatic tissues, which then leads to a, a kind of challenge in terms of diagnosis. So then can canine hookworms infect humans or other species of animals? Humans have their own hookworm species. There's a couple of species, Nicator americanus and Ancestoma judinale, the latter being very closely related to the dog hookworm. And actually, there's over a billion people infected with human hookworms. But these are, these are different species of parasite. And so they're really diseases of people in the developing world and are, are actually major issues in global health. But if we think of the dog hookworm, Ancelostoma canine, it can't actually establish to an adult worm and a human. But what it can do is those larvae penetrate skin. They can migrate subcutaneously. And as they do so, they will cause inflammation and that can then cause a uh, dermatitis and this this is a, a syndrome called cutaneous larval migrans 
And that that's quite common in those places where you get a high prevalence of these this particular parasite. So in places such as the Southeast USA, uh, the Caribbean, and, and other places of the world as well. There's a couple of different dog hookworm species that can do it. Ancestoma caninum, which is what we're talking about today. Also Ancestoma brasiliensis, which is more localized in the Southern US. And it's really unclear which of those two is, is the most important. And, that, and that's a kind of area where there needs to be more research to, to figure that out. But both of them can cause this problem. And it's quite an unpleasant disease. It has kind of all sorts of colloquial names, such as ground itch and plumber's itch. Although it's self-limiting after several months, it can cause quite severe dermatitis. And the main treatment for it, as, as well as symptomatic treatment for the, for the um, actual discomfort is using antelmintics, more or less the same ones we use in, in dogs. And the two main ones are albendazole and ivermectin. When we come back to our resistance story in the dog hookworms, it, it may have knock-on effects for the treatment of this condition. So let's get into that resistance story then. Can you tell us when and how anthelmintic resistance was first suspected in these hookworms? Is this something that applies to all dogs, or is it specific to certain types of dogs, such as greyhounds? As probably most people know, deworming of dogs is, is routinely done. For the hookworms, there's a variety of these anthelmintics which are active against them. There's three main broad-spectrum classes, which, which are ones that the bentamidazoles and drugs like febentyl and fembendazole, the main ones there. Purintyl is the other group, and then the macrocyclic lactones, such as ivermectin, moxidectin or novomycin and those latter ones are used as heartworm preventatives as well so if you think of all the commercial dewormer products the different ones will contain different combinations of those products now when these things were licensed they were all highly effective against dog hookworm i guess the suspicion of of resistance came about through an anecdotal kind of feeling and reports of an increasing number of dogs which seemed to be refractory to treatment. So they would come back over months repeatedly, still being hookworm positive in spite of being on, on dewormer control regimes. And so, so that was kind of a, a kind of feeling in the profession, I think, which has been growing for some time. But because of the lack of specific diagnostic tools, also complicated by this larval leak phenomenon I talked about before with these inhibited larvae repopulating the gut with adult worms after treatment. And, and then the risk of reinfection as well as, as another factor. It, it's surprisingly complex to nail down resistance. And so there's been a lot of debate and discussion for quite some time. Touching on your question, is it a problem for, for old dogs? There's a number of breeds which are, seem to be more predisposed. Greyhounds is a classic one. Uh, we see much more common and greater problems with greyhounds traditionally. And that's partly at least to do with the way they're kept. And again, we can touch on that one and talk about the research. So greyhounds are a particular problem. But having said that, practically all breeds are susceptible to this and are at risk depending on, on obviously their worm control and their access to infective larvae in the environment. And so typically when you're screening dogs for gastrointestinal parasites using faecal examination, Depending where you are in North America, it can be as high as 16% of animals in the South would typically come up as being positive for these parasites, Ancelstoma specifically. Or as I said earlier in the North, it's kind of around 3 to 6%, something like that. So they are common and widespread. So really, 
where it kind of became more apparent rather than just anecdotal discussions was really the fact that over the last decade or so, the surveillance data on, on companion animal parasites has actually been very good. And, and, and this is largely through this group called uh, CAPC, who you may be familiar with, which is the Companion Animal Parasite Council in the US, who basically collect information from the, the commercial diagnostic labs on parasite prevalence and infection intensities. They produce prevalence maps and the rest of it on their website. So through that, there's been a clear increase in the prevalence of hookworms over the last 10 years, literally double than it was 10 years ago. And so that, that's hard data showing something's changing. So based on that, colleagues at the University of Georgia, um, Dr. Ray Kaplan and colleagues, basically have started looking at this probably about six or seven years ago. And, and we joined in three or four years ago to really ask this question, is this increasing prevalence or these anecdotal reports due to resistance or not? Can you tell us a bit more about your studies? Yeah, so as I say, you know, the key people involved in this, I should credit people first, is Ray Carpenter mentioned at the University of Georgia and his graduate student, Pablo Jimenez Castro, and my graduate student, Ebeneo Van Catterson. So it's a number of other people as well, but those are the key people who've been doing this research. So probably should start with just talking about how you detect resistance and how we've used that to confirm uh, that resistance is actually present and what its prevalence actually is. It's actually surprisingly difficult to nail down resistance definitively. There are three basic ways we can do it. One is through a fetal egg count reduction test, which is a, a clinical test, if you like. And basically what you need to do there is take a fecal sample on the day of treatment, do a treatment at the correct dose rate, and then take another fecal sample two weeks later. And then undertake take a fecal egg count on both those samples, but using a, a method which is sufficiently quantitative and accurate. So there's a number of those, such as the McMaster or the modified stalls, and, and using those techniques rather than the ones that sometimes are more commonly used in, in practice. And then from those fecal egg counts, calculate a percentage reduction in the egg count accurately. And that will tell you essentially how well the drug's working directly in a clinical kind of context. Really, for these drugs, if there's no resistance, it should be at least 95% effective. And if they're below 75% in terms of egg count reduction, that would indicate resistance. If they're between 75 and 95%, it's kind of a gray area, if you like. And then the second way is, is a number of in vitro assays. And there's two main ones. One's the egg hatch assay, which looks at the ability of eggs to hatch and drug in, in the lab. And then love development assay, which is a measure of how well larvae develop from L1 to L3, again, in the lab. So they can be done. But again, they're a bit fiddly and there's really only a few labs who are actually good at doing it reliably. And then the third way is, is by molecular methods where we actually look for the resistance mutations in the parasite's genome. And so we can do that for the benzamidazole group, like benzamidazole fevental, because we understand the mechanism of resistance, we know what mutations to look for. So those three methods are kind of applied in this context of trying to really see, do we have resistant parasites? So the first study was really on three cases from the US, which were these refractory cases. And these three kind of approaches were applied and in all three clear cases, they definitively confirm resistance. And just to give you an indication as, as to the level of resistance, the resistance factors, which is how less sensitive 
these parasites are to the drug on these in vitro assays than a susceptible strain would be, varied in these tests between about six and a hundredfold. In some cases, the level of resistance was very high. With the faecal egg count reduction test, the reduction in egg counts varied from between literally 30% down to 0% in terms of reduction in eggs. So all these three refractory cases turned out to be confirmed as resistance. And then, then we extended that study to, to a larger scale survey of greyhounds because of what I said earlier, those are the kind of, that's the breed and, and the, the group of dogs which traditionally there's been a bigger problem with and we did a study again with a group from university of georgia on 200 greyhounds from a number of adoption kennels and veterinary practices and where we looked at egg counts there two weeks after treatment i think the mean egg counts of still about 700 eggs per gram in those animals so those drug treatments of different classes were not working very well at all and then we again we applied these tests to about 50 of these greyhound cases in almost all cases, it was confirmed by both the in vitro assay and the, the molecular test for resistance for the benzimidazoles. So it really looked like this resistance in the greyhounds was extremely widespread. In fact, sampling greyhounds, mainly from the southern US area, basically 90% of greyhounds had multiple resistant parasites. So it's pretty severe. The issue with that is a lot of these greyhounds, when they retire, rehomed across the US and actually into Canada as well. And so, you know, there's a great potential to spread the problem around. And we think that's what's happened. So the next part of the work we've been doing is asking the question, well, okay, it's very severe and widespread in greyhounds. What's the situation in pet dogs? The problem is, as I've alluded to with these tests, it's kind of difficult to do large scale surveillance with either faecal egg count reduction tests or even those in vitro assays. So what we did is we used the kind of molecular test of that benzimidazole drug class as a way of just screening widely to see how widespread the problem this might be in pet dogs. Again, with Ray and Pablo, we, we sourced a large number of samples from actually IDEX, which were hookworm positive, extracted DNA, and then applied these molecular tests. Looking at about 350 patients across the US, we found these resistance mutations were present in over 60% of the dogs we looked at. And actually the overall frequency of those mutations was about 40%. So in other words, 40% roughly of the worms we're looking at were actually carrying these resistance mutations. It's quite a shocking result because it really shows that this resistance is really spread far and wide in the pet dog population without anybody really, I wouldn't say not noticing because we kind of alluded to it before that there was a lot of anecdotal discussion without really knowing that resistance was behind it all. So I suppose that that has some implications as well for our Canadian dog populations. Just with us bringing in dogs from elsewhere into the country, is there any thought of doing any particular studies like in a northern climate like Canada? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a good question. That's what we're planning to do. I mean, there's two issues in Canada. One is, you know, there's a lot of dogs imported from or traveling to and from the US. And so practices dealing with imported animals are going to come across this anyway. And I think that's a big issue in terms of how you manage hookworm positive dogs coming into the country. And then the second issue is about endemic hookworms in Canada. As I said, traditionally, if you go back 20, 30 years, we tend to think Ancelostoma wasn't endemic here. But the recent study in Ontario is, is very suggestive that at least in eastern Canada it is now endemic. The source of those populations 
probably from the US originally. And so it's, it's highly likely that the population of parasites in Canada is going to be much the same as the one in, in the US. What we plan to do is to do a study of exactly that, is to, to look again at the prevalence of, of Ancelostoma in dogs in different parts of Canada and also to look at the, the frequency of these resistance mutations because that's the quickest way to get a first snapshot of seeing if it's there or not. So we haven't started that yet, but we plan to do that hopefully in the next year or two. How can a veterinarian in practice figure out if they're, if they're treating a dog who's infected with drug-resistant hookworms versus regular hookworms? It's a practical challenge for sure. So, I mean, I guess if you imagine a situation of a practitioner who is seeing a case which represents several times over a period of months where you've still got hookworm positivity in fecal examination and, and Depending on the practice and the situation, depending on how much we use routine fecal examination will depend on how often that occurs. But essentially, that's what typically presents. And so practitioners faced with chopping and changing drugs, deciding what to do. And typically, that's what's happened in the past. Oh, that drug didn't work. Let's try that one. Whereas, you know, what we really need to be doing now is moving towards a diagnosis of is this a resistant parasite population or not? The direct thing a practitioner can do is actually do a fecal egg count reduction test, which is where you sample on the day of treatment, treat, and then sample 10 to 14 days later and get a proper fecal egg count done either in a practice lab or in a, a diagnostic lab, but it needs to be done with one of these more accurate methods. If the egg count reduction is below 75%, that would suggest resistance. If it's above 95, it would say the opposite. If it's between the two, it's a gray area and that requires retesting or maybe you'll have to seek specialist advice. The other thing actually which is interesting is Antec are just about to launch a new PCR panel for about 20 different parasites. They're going to do that this spring apparently and within that uh, they're going to have a PCR test for this particular mutation that we've been looking at as part of that panel. So that will be a useful tool as well in terms of uh, screening and testing. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. I'll stick with the practicalities, though, for a second and extend that. Do you have suggestions for vets in practice as to how they will go about treating these dogs if they find one who is drug resistant? How do they go about treating that infection in that patient? It's a tricky problem, isn't it? Because what we've said on the research side is we're trending to see multiple resistance. And certainly the greyhounds, where we've tested multiple drugs, it tends to be several classes, not just one class. Pet dogs, as I say, with the way we've done it because of, of the limitations of the molecular test, is, you know, we only know one drug class, but, the, but there is a high likelihood you can have multiple resistance, I think, in terms of it presenting. So that creates a problem of, of how do you handle that? Actually, the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists set up a a task force to, to, to kind of come up with some recommendations on this. And there should be available, hopefully, within the coming months. So there'll be some clarity around, you know, standard protocols of what to do. But essentially, what that's going to look like is triple combination treatment as the first point of call. So if resistance is confirmed, then the recommendation is likely to be a combination of three different drug classes. So something like Fabental, which is the benzimidazole, Purintal, which are given orally, and then a topical moxidectin treatment. And so there are a number of products which have that. And so using those in combination, and they're given 
you, if, the, if separate products are given orally, they're given sequentially rather than mixing alternative products. But that triple combination, we think, is likely to be effective at the moment because the key ingredient in that is the moxidectin, because we think that moxidectin resistance is still relatively uncommon. There is evidence that it's present in some greyhound populations, but generally speaking, the moxidectin is still effective. Having said that, what we know from in sheep parasites with ivermectin resistance is once you get ivermectin resistance, moxidectin resistance soon follows. So, so the challenge will be in the future, I think, over the coming years, is how long that triple combination is likely to be effective. But that's what's being recommended. There is another option, which is a potential option of last resort, and that's a drug called emodepside, which is um, only available as a topical product for cats, which is absorbed and, and is very active against gastrointestinal nematodes. It is available orally for dogs in Europe, but not in North America as yet. And it is potentially possible to use that extra label as an oral in dogs, but there's issues around the dose choice. It's slightly lower dose than you would use what's stated for the topical. And it has to be used extra label with all the issues around that. And there are some risks to using it because it's known that dogs which have a deletion for the MDR1 gene, which is this drug transporter gene, which sometimes causes problems with ivermectin toxicity, can lead to toxicity with this product. And also if dogs have heartworm infection and high levels of microflaria, that can lead to a, an adverse reaction, which manifests neurologically as well. So, so it's not without risk using imidepside. So it's not something which is recommended lightly. And uh, if anybody ends up at that last resort, it would be highly advisable to seek specialist advice. Yes, it's interesting that you you brought in the heartworm component there because really hookworms are just one of several parasites that we as veterinarians are working to treat or to prevent in our canine patients. How do you think the emergence of anthelmintic resistance in these hookworms might affect how we treat and deworm dogs more generally? I mean, heartworm treatment, really, North America, really drives internal parasite control in dogs. Again, without spending a lot of time on the details, you know, it's obviously transmitted by mosquitoes. It's a severe disease. The prevention of it really depends on blocking transmission uh, and preventing animal being infected by the L3, which is introduced by the mosquito. And that's typically done by regular macrocyclolactone treatments, so ivermectin, selamectin, moxidectin, um, milbamycin, all those products. There's a whole variety of products that can be used for that. And so there's this regular monthly all year round treatment, which is recommended primarily to prevent heartworm and then either additional treatment depending on the product being used is used to cover these other parasites such as, as hookworms. So that's you know a big driver of parasite control recommendations. What we've seen in the last number of years is now resistance emerging in macrocyclolactones and heartworm. And that again that's a separate topic. But that was really first confirmed probably about five or six years ago. And there's multiple confirmed cases of resistance to macrocyclic lactones and heartworm, which is a major concern, obviously. The problem with that situation is we don't have a good handle on its overall prevalence because we don't have the tools to undertake kind of large-scale surveillance. So, so we don't know exactly where it's at, but it's certainly emerging. And so, so again, that, that kind of, we've got two problems now, 
the two most important dog parasites in North America we now have resistance problems to. One in terms of hookworm, which is extremely widespread. The other in terms of heartworm, as it's emerging, we're not quite sure how, where it's at in terms of overall prevalence. I think what we can say is that the recommendations are going to be in a state of flux. If I think if we look at the next year or two, there's going to be a lot of discussion and debate about what we should be doing about it, because it's not something that really there's been much discussion about at all until very recently. The assumption is being that resistance isn't a problem in, in roundworms and companion animals, unlike farm animals, and therefore we've not needed to worry about it. And therefore these all year round treatment, regular treatments for particular for heartworm have been the you know way to go. And now that's potentially not that sustainable in itself. And also you, you potentially select them for resistance for other parasites. So it, it opens up that whole debate. In terms of monthly treatments for heartworm, I mean, even that has been subject to some debate over the last few years, because uh, if you look at the CAPC recommendations I, I alluded to earlier, that, that Companion Animal Parasite Council group in the US, they strongly recommend monthly treatments. And that's what everybody does primarily to control hookworm all year round. And that's, you know, been debated a little bit. If you if you come to somewhere like Alberta, I'll take an extreme example. We don't have endemic hookworm here, so it makes no sense to me to use those recommendations here. Equally, if you go to Eastern Canada, the transmission of hookworm is seasonal, right? It's mainly summer, uh, late spring, early autumn. And so, so you know, there's some school of thought that says maybe we should be only treating during transmission season. So I think those debates are going to resurface and... Really, you know, I think we're not in a position right now to say you must do this, but I think it's really important to realize that this is going to change the kind of landscape in terms of how we advise on parasite control. Are there deworming strategies then in use for other species that might be helpful in small animal vet med as we plan for a possible future that involves more anthelmintic resistant canine parasites? I think the answer to that is is not specifically, actually, because I think if you look at the livestock side, a lot of the way we're managing it there is a bit different because we're dealing with herd animals, right? So groups of animals, typically. And so one of the problems with there is we've been treating large groups of animals with drugs en masse and providing lots of drug selection. So, so some of the trends there are now to only treat a portion of animals in the group and only those are, you know, with the highest parasite burdens and those kind of approaches to try and reduce selection pressure. That obviously doesn't apply to, to companion animals in the same way at all. So I think some of these principles are quite specific to the parasite and the host. It, it, you know, it varies a lot in terms of that. So I think it's a little bit dangerous to look at what we're doing with our whole species and apply it to dogs. I think there are, there are some lessons. I mean, for example, drug combinations is, is a good way to go. We already do that to some degree in, in small animals anyway, right, is, is we have combination products. But I think if we have combination products that are active against the same parasite, that's always going to slow resistance in using a single product. So that is something to think more about is how we use drug combinations more explicitly to slow down resistance and that's something i think that that might be um, part of the, the discussion going forward i'm curious if there's anything that you've learned from this research that may be pertinent in more of a one health or even a human health context in a wider sense when when we look at what we've learned about drug resistance in both farm animals and now 
companion animals on the veterinary side, I mean, that tells us a lot about what may be happening on the human side. So again, just very briefly, when we think about these, these gastrointestinal parasites in humans, such as hookworms, which are close relatives of, of the dog hookworm, but also things like Trichuris and Ascaris, which literally affect a billion people globally. The control of those is absolutely dependent on the mass drug administration programs with once, twice yearly treatments with exactly the same drugs you use in veterinary medicine, particularly the benzimidazoles. And we know what happens when we use those classes of drugs regularly like that. We select for resistance. So these mass drug administration programs, which cover literally you know, half a billion people getting these, these drug administrations, are at risk of resistance emergence. And there's, there's hints of it already and a lot of debate about whether resistance is emerging or not. So I think a lot of what we've learned in veterinary medicine, both technically in terms of how we detect resistance, but also in terms of how resistance emerges and, and how to look for it and how to avoid it, are very pertinent to, to the human global health situation. Then the other side of that is, is some of these parasites are actually zoonotic, have animal reservoirs, both dog hookworms, and there's a number of species in, in, of ascaris and, and um and uh, hookworms, which will have reservoirs either on pigs in the case of ascaris or dogs in the case of hookworms, which may also have impacts on, on human health. So there's lots of different one health aspects to this whole area. What's next on the horizon then for research like this into anthelmintic resistance, either in dogs or in other species? I think lots of things. We could break it down, I guess, into three big areas. One is hopefully what's come through from this is we need better diagnostics. That's a huge area. Uh, we really, we have some tools, but they really are difficult to apply and often not scalable and often not translatable across labs and all that kind of thing. And that comes from research into the mechanisms of resistance where we can get better molecular diagnostics, et cetera. So that's a whole area of resistance research that is underway, but needs to be probably expanded. And then also better surveillance, active surveillance, because one of the lessons we should be learning by now is without active surveillance, we're lit to the game. And by the time we detect resistance and figure out the problem, it's already advanced on a major problem. So, so thinking of ways of doing surveillance and that incorporates those diagnostic tools. There's always a need for new drugs. And, and so the pharmaceutical industry have a role as well as academia in that in terms of drug discovery. And then, then alternative control methods and that partly comes back to more targeted use of drugs drug combinations integrating diagnostics but also well, uh, the development of vaccines as well as a, a more basic science research area uh, there is actually a homonchus vaccine in sheep which is used in some parts of the world but it's very challenging to produce vaccines against gastrointestinal nematodes for a whole variety of reasons but that's another area of research and then and then on the livestock side, there's lots of areas in terms of grazing management and breeding for resistance and all those things. So there's a whole plethora of different types of research that are both being done, but more needs to be done. But at the end of the day, I think better diagnostics or targets of use of drugs and more surveillance is, is really what's needed. Thanks very much, Dr. Gilliard, for sharing the results and the implications of this research with us today on Animal Health Insights. We'll share some links about Dr. Gilliard and this research on our podcast webpage and at cas.ca. Thanks for joining us. The Animal Health Insights podcast is a production of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. CAS is a division of Animal Health Canada, 
and it has broad-based support from livestock sectors and government. PAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial territorial initiative.